the New Testament as we continue our studies through the book and have arrived this evening at chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, where we read these words. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, that is, in the presence of God, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. May God bless to us the reading of this further portion of his own word. Now, we have been almost four months thus far in the great uh, book of First John together as we have been exploring his message and his exhortation to the church of God in these very rich and applicatory passages of Scripture. And I think that all of us have realized more and more the appropriateness of the title of this series of expositions, The Fellowship of Light and Love, with its emphasis that if God's people desire to know the fellowship of God, then their lives must be in accord with the requirement to walk in the light and to love the brethren, love the fellow members of Christ's church. One of the commentaries that I have consulted from time to time in preparing these expositions puts the same truth in a beautiful way by its title, The Tests of Faith. Now, we've come this evening to a section in John's first letter that is, in a sense, an interlude, and a very refreshing interlude, particularly after the searching application of the Scriptures last Sunday evening. And it may come as something of a surprise to us that John appears to interrupt the presentation of these tests of the genuine Christian that he has been giving to us, the righteousness of our lives, the love of the brethren, our application to the truth of God, and so on, in an interruption or an interlude that deals with the subject of confidence and of doubt in verses 19 through 24. I'm sure that even just in the reading a few minutes ago, you will have noticed the theme of those verses as chapter 3 concludes being the theme of confidence before God. The frequency, for instance, with which the word know occurs. By this we know. By this we know. And I want to suggest to you as we come to this important conclusion to chapter 3 that the question before us is a very vital one. It's not academic in any sense at all. 
as we have seen that so much of John's writing is so eminently practical and so very vital for our Christian lives. When you think of it, the day is quickly hastening on as we were reminded in our opening hymn this evening, Abide With Me, Fast Falls, The Eventide. The day is quickly hastening on when you and I shall stand before the very presence of God and on that awesome occasion, the great question will be, what will our estate before God be on that day? Even now, how do we view it? Are we fearful and nervous at the prospect of standing before him? If I were to die tonight, am I sure that I will go to heaven? Or do I merely hope that that will be the issue of the end of my life? Am I sure now but my sins are forgiven? Am I confident, in other words, that I possess eternal life? And do I contemplate spiritual things in this life, uh, expressing their loveliness and feeling their attraction, or am I repelled by them? You see, the question of whether I can have confidence before God is a very vital and a practical one. And beyond all question of doubt, the Bible teaches me that if I have truly believed in the Lord Jesus, then I will have the blessed knowledge of confidence in God. Now, the reason, you see, for this interlude that John gives us here is his pastoral concern for God's people in this very area. He's been applying to us, you remember, in the previous verses, a very practical test of whether the Christian is a true Christian. Do I sacrificially love my brethren in Christ? This was the theme of the preceding section. Thank you. Uh, This was the theme of the preceding section. And in the Christian's heart must arise the question. I fail so often in this very area of loving my brethren. How can I stand with confidence before God? And so in a lovely way, John is introducing this interlude to us to assure us that we may know confidence before God. There is this beautiful biblical balance of a searching teaching on the one hand and an encouragement on the other that we may stand confidently indeed before God, our Heavenly Father. So I want you to look at these verses with me, and he brings to us three great thoughts that we need to have confidence before God in order to know assured peace of heart. We need to have confidence before God in order to know answered prayer, and we need to know confidence before God in order to have the acknowledged presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Now, will you look then with me at these verses and begin with verses 19 through 20, as John brings to us the great truth that we must be confident before God, and indeed we may be confident before him, because tied into that confidence is acknowledged peace of heart. Verses 19 through 20. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth 
and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Now, if you look at those two verses, you find that John is bringing to us three important truths that we need to grasp. And let me try to lay them out in the best and most helpful order. He is teaching us, first of all, that our hearts do condemn us as Christians. Look at his statement at the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Uh, This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. So, He is giving voice to the truth that if we are Christians, there will be occasions and times in our Christian lives when our very hearts rise up within us and condemn us in the presence of God. And there's no question here that John, when he speaks of the heart, is thinking of the heart in the sense of the Christian's uh, conscience, the conscience rising up and condemning the believer. Now, why would he say this? Well, when you look at all that he has delivered to us in the previous passages and in his great teaching about the Christian life, we realize that we do not always walk in the light. We do not always, all the time, confess our sins as we should. We do not always, in every instance, keep the commandments of God. We certainly do not love the brethren always as we should. And we do not always love not the world as we should not love it. But especially in the previous section that we studied last Sunday evening, verses 11 through 18, Our lives are not always characterized by the self-sacrificial love that is expressed in Christ. But very often our lives are marked instead by the self-centered love of Cain. And the principle, I will give my life for your life, does not characterize the believer. In other words, in a nutshell, we are often conscious that we have failed the Lord and we have fallen and the world may look at us and even our fellow believers may look at us on occasion and say, what a miserable excuse for a Christian he or she really is. Now, I challenge you tonight. I believe there is scarcely a believer here in this assembly who cannot have said at some time, my very heart condemns me in the presence of God. Or with the great apostle in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And so, you see, it is so necessary for us, so essential to be able to set our troubled hearts at rest Because if our conscience or our heart is constantly accusing us from within, it affects fundamentally our relationship with God. We cannot have confidence to stand in the presence of God. We cannot have confidence, as we'll see in a moment, to pray before the Lord with any sense that he will hear and answer our prayers. 
our very Christian service is affected. It damages our relationship with fellow believers. And it restricts our own growth as Christians if we are living in an atmosphere constantly when our hearts are condemning us in the presence of God. Now, that is the first truth that he is bringing us. So what is the divine remedy and encouragement that the Lord brings to us for this condition? Now, this is the second truth he brings to us. That our loving deeds may nevertheless reassure us. Do you notice the beginning of verse 19? This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, even when our hearts are busy condemning us. This, then, is how we know that we are children of God. Now, what does the this, then, refer to? Well, without any question, it refers back to what we were studying last Sunday evening, verses 11 to 18, by loving the brethren in deed and in truth. We are able to reassure ourselves that in spite of what our hearts may say to us on occasion, there has been a work of God's grace that has been going on within us. And you remember his argument, because one born of God loves. And if you love, therefore the evidence is present in your life that you have indeed been born of God, because it is impossible for the natural man to love in the way that John has been describing, the self-sacrificial love as opposed to the self-centered love. Therefore, the believer looks at the way he is behaving in day-by-day life, and he is able to draw the conclusion from his behavior, God must be at work in me, because I am not the same selfish and self-centered person that I was before. And the only way that I could move from the one kind of behavior to the other kind of behavior is by being born of God. And as the believer realizes that the love of God has been revealed in that great and supreme self-sacrifice and self-giving of the Son of God, so that he is born of God in his act, there is some correspondence with that self-sacrificial love of his Lord and Savior. And by this response, we may know experientially that we are the children of God. God is love. If I love, it is because I too have been born of God. You remember that emphasis in verse 14 of chapter 3. Look at it. Anyone who does not love what remains in death. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Neither is anyone a child of God who does not love his brethren. Verse 17. How can the love of God dwell in him who is living in hate? Now, do you see what John is saying? Our hearts condemn us. But the Christian's good works reassure us. Now the question is, is this something based on good works? And the answer is not exactly at all. Because the works that we do as Christians, as we realize, are the result of God's works 
in us. And the point is that many may claim to be of the truth and genuine Christians, but how do we know that they are what they say they are? The answer is by what they do. Do they love in this self-sacrificial way? If they do, then there is evidence that they and we are born of God and children of God and may have confidence, therefore, before God. Now, the other question is, is this perfect in the Christian's life? And the answer, of course, is we never reach perfection here in this life. But the question is, has there been change? Has there been growth in me? Is love being progressively manifested to the brethren? Am I able to give myself to other people? Do I really love my wife in my home with the love of Christ and sacrifice for her? Do I love my children and sacrifice for them? Do I love my fellow members in this congregation and live in self-sacrificial love that is growing and maturing as my life is lived out in their presence? It's not a question of whether I always act in every instance in that way, but is the tendency and direction of my life to love self-sacrificially. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. The direction of my life is to love others. But the third thing you notice he gives to us is that God then pronounces his verdict upon the evidence of his grace in my life. Now look at it. It's very important in verse 20. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now remember the stages that we've gone through. Why do we need confidence before God in order to have acknowledged peace of heart. But my heart as a Christian, John says, condemns me because I do not always live consistently, nor do I love as I should in every instance. Ah, yes, he says. But the evidence of the work of God's grace in you gives you ground to know that you are a child of God and therefore to have confidence before him. But to that testimony, God now adds his own verdict of confirmation because he is greater than our hearts and knows everything. Now, what does John mean? Well, surely the meaning is further encouragement for the believer who in the light of John's teaching has been doing some self-examination. And John knows very well that for some believers, even the testimony of the good works that they exhibit is not enough to give them confidence before the presence of a holy God. So he says to those believers, then think of the bigger picture. It's not your heart which is the judge on the final day. It's God who is greater than your heart, who brings in the verdict that acquits you. Do you see what he's saying? God is greater than my heart, even when my heart is condemning me. He knows all things about me. He knows that there is a work of grace that has gone on within me. 
And it's as though John is repeating in his own way what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 10. God is not so unjust as to forget your labor of love. And so the exhortation continues that we should live in full assurance of hope to the end. And that's the thought here at the end of verse 20. Now, this morning I was in agreement with John Calvin. This evening I'm in disagreement with him, because John Calvin is almost certainly wrong in his interpretation of this verse, where he applies it almost in a threatening way to the professing believer. And he says in his commentary, and I quote, For if anyone is conscious of guilt and is condemned by the feeling of his own mind, far less can he escape God's judgment. So you see, Calvin comes to this verse and he says, if your own conscience condemns you, how much greater will the condemnation of God be upon you? Now, there is a certain sense, of course, in which that is perfectly true, but the question is, is that John's purpose? And the answer is certainly no. He brings in the thought not to threaten us, not to lead us to further self-examination, but to encourage us and reassure us, presenting the additional truth that if our works evidence the fact that we may have confidence before God, how much more does our gracious Heavenly Father, who knows everything and knows that we love Him and desire to love Him, how much more is His verdict to assure us who is greater than our heart? and our conscience. It's as though John is reflecting upon what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who shall condemn us? You see the thought. And if I can paraphrase, I think what John is saying, Lord, I am not what I ought to be. Lord, I am certainly not what I want to be. Neither am I what one day by thy grace I shall be. But blessed be God, I am not what I used to be. You see his thought. And God knows that change has come about and sets his seal upon the believer's conscience when our heart condemns us. You're still a child of mine, and you can have acknowledged peace of heart when you stand in my presence. Now, isn't that a blessed thing, then, that John is bringing to us as he has searched our consciences and searched our hearts by these great tests of the Christian faith? Do I obey God's commandments? Do I love the brethren? Do I walk in the light? Do I abstain from the love of the world? And my heart says, you're not there completely and perfectly, and you're so inconsistent, and what a miserable excuse for a Christian you are. This, then, is how we know that we are of the truth. Well, the second reason for having confidence before God, you notice, is in the realm of answered prayer, and I'm going to be briefer here. Verses 21 to 22. It's a lovely verse, or 
compilation of two verses. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Now, the connection, you notice, in John's thought is that the peace of heart that we have, if we have confidence before God, should issue out in confidence in prayer. We should know the blessings of answered prayer as we come into the presence of God. And how necessary it is, as you will know, to be confident before God when we pray to him. If I come when my heart has been disobedient and I'm out of fellowship with God to pray, I have no confidence to stand in his presence or to expect the answer to my prayer. But John, you see, is teaching us here that if we have confidence before God as we need to have, it will issue out into answered prayer. And we will have assurance that whatever we ask of God in a biblical way, he will answer us in those things. And there is the second fruit of our having that confidence before God by which we may encourage ourselves. Now let's look at it. There are really just two things here, and let me deal with them briefly. And the first is, do I go to God in this confidence and faith? Because I certainly need to do that if I am to know the answered prayer that the Word of God promises me. You may remember from the ministry of Jesus that remarkable occasion of his raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11, verse 41, when he stood before the open tomb of Lazarus and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people who are standing here. Now, it's very striking in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus that he knew perfectly what we know so imperfectly. I know that you always hear me. You see, the the thought in Jesus' mind is that of confidence as he comes into the presence of God, that his heavenly Father is always ready to hear and answer the requests of his own dear Son. And the question that John is raising is the same question in these verses 21 and 22. What is necessary for answered prayer? Confidence before God, conviction in my heart that the Father hears and will respond to the cry of his child. But how do I so often come before God? You know, it reminds me of the way that some of our children come to their parents in those whining requests for those of you who are parents know so well, that whining tone that already determines that you are going to say no to their request because they're defeated even before they've asked for whatever they want to ask. And I think that our Heavenly Father is very much like that in the response that he gives to his people when they do not come with that Christ-given confidence and boldness that allows them with freedom of speech to say, Lord, you have given us, as it were, a blank check that as we ask in the name of our beloved Savior, whatever we ask, you will do for us. So we are to come, you see, with confidence because it is the condition of the answer to prayer 
that we make. But the second thing is, you notice in verse 22, that we must come with obedience if prayers are to be answered. And John is very specific and clear there that though we have, as it were, a blank check given to us, whatever you ask, uh, God will answer you in those things. But the condition is that the Christian must walk in obedience and therefore must pray according to God's will. Now, again, we are not being introduced to a doctrine of works here. But if I live obediently and do all that God's law requires of me, then he is bound to answer my prayers. Of course not. But because I am coming in a condition of heart, John says, where I believe humbly I am doing God's will under the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit, and I am assured that I am living in active fellowship with my Lord and Savior whom I love, then I know that my prayers will not be selfish prayers, will not arise from my own heart, but will be prompted by the Holy Spirit who has led me into a life of obedience where I desire from the heart that God will be done. My prayers will be prompted by the Holy Spirit for God's glory and the fulfillment of his will. And therefore, coming in that attitude and obedience and in faith, they will be answered. Now, if we have any other view of of prayer, it amounts to a magical formula where if it's taken out of the context of faith and obedience and God's will, it becomes some magical incantation. But if I say, in the name of Jesus, there will be some sort of magical answer. And of course, biblical prayer is never to be understood in those categories at all. Now let me summarize this second point. The second blessing of confidence before God is not simply acknowledged peace of heart, but is the answer to the believer's prayers regularly and steadily given. And oh, what a blessed thing this is as we come with a boldness of a son appearing in the presence of his father and having that confidence before God that he will hear and answer every request of the believer. Now, thirdly, as I begin to draw to a close, there is the assured presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at those verses with me. Those who obey God's commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, so far, remember that confidence has its fruit in peace of heart and in answered prayer. But now we see that it is related to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How am I enabled to have confidence before God? John shows us that the Holy Spirit is the means by which this confidence is imparted to us. Now just look at that briefly with me as I finish this evening. What he's saying is that the Spirit's presence assures us that God and Christ truly abide or dwell in us. Well, the question is, how does the Holy Spirit do this? 
And I suggest to you that what John is giving us here is something different from what Paul gives us in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16, where he says there is a direct witness of the Holy Spirit to the heart of the believer, where it's clear that assurance that we are children of God in Romans 8, verse 15 and 16 comes from the direct witness of the Holy Spirit to my spirit, but I am a child of God. But what John is doing here is something different, and it must be taken in the context of this whole chapter. What he is evidently saying to us when he says, we know it, that is, the fact that God dwells in us and Christ dwells in us, we know it and can have confidence by the Spirit that God has given to us. And the context shows that the Spirit of God takes these evidences that John has given to us of loving the brethren and walking in the light and obeying God's commandments and not loving the world. He takes the evidence of these things. And through that evidence, he shows us that we are truly indwelt by the presence of God and therefore may have confidence before God, our Heavenly Father. Now, it's a wonderful thing, I suggest to you. And maybe you know this in your own experience. I'm sure you do. You've been cast down. Your conscience has condemned you. You've spoken words that you regret speaking. You've done things that a Christian should not do. In your private life, you know you have been unbelieving and disobedient. Your conscience condemns you. And then the Holy Spirit, as he is leading you to repentance suddenly takes the evidence from another part of your life and he sheds new light on it and he brings into your mind what you did in a certain circumstance that could only have been done by the grace of God, forgiving an enemy, forgiving from the heart some deep hurt that almost clave you in two, yet you were able to forgive it. And he sheds light on that evidence that is there in your Christian experience and enables you from that evidence to be confident that in spite of your inconsistency and your sin, you are a child of God. This is an aberration. The other is a consistent pattern, not perfect, but present as the direction in which your life is moving. Now do you see what I'm saying to you? The ground of assurance, thirdly, is the assured presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that assurance comes to us not in a vacuum. God doesn't suddenly zap us with confidence before God. It doesn't work that way. He takes these things that I've spoken to you of this evening from this first letter of John, and he applies them to our hearts. And the issue and the fruit of them is a growing confidence in the Lord. Now, do you see what I've been saying to you? It is indeed a vital matter. Whether one has confidence before God or lacks it affects profoundly how I live my Christian life, how I appear and stand before God, how I relate to my fellow believers in the church, how I serve God 
Is it with a heavy, condemnatory heart? Or is it with a heart that is made light and joyful by the knowledge that though my walk is not perfect before God, I may have confidence in his presence. By this we know we are of the truth. By this we assure our hearts in God's presence when those very same hearts condemn us. By this we know that we belong to God. There is no other way, I suggest to you, of assurance as John brings it to us, than this way other than the direct testimony of the Holy Spirit to our hearts in the context of loving God, of loving service to the brethren. That's where the Holy Spirit meets us and takes the evidence and sheds a heavenly light upon us and says to us, you are indeed a child of mine. Well, may God give us such evidence of spirit-produced fruit in our lives that we may have confidence before God when our hearts condemn us. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for a passage that, while it is an interlude and an interruption in the great argument of the apostle, is full of such rich assurance as pastorally John draws near to God's people and reassures the trembling and the fainting heart and reassures the weak believer that he is indeed what he claims to be, a child of God. May that assurance truly be ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.